Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, remember that Trump phone call about finding 11,780 votes? Well, finally, we hear how Trump's lawyers are going to try to defend that. The lead starts right now. With cameras a-rolling, Mr. Trump's lawyers appear in Fulton County, Georgia, and begin their attempt to defend their client. What they presented today before Judge McAfee and what's likely to come down the pike. We're going to dive into all of it. Plus, the ceasefire, regrettably, is over. The White House is blaming Hamas, and now Israeli strikes resume in Gaza. While Prime Minister Netanyahu is facing new criticism and tough questions about warnings his government received and dismissed as recently as last summer about a pending Hamas attack. And the locks changed on George Santos's office already just hours after the historic vote expelling him from Congress. All the day's drama, the fire, the fury, the tears, the cheers, as we say, not goodbye to George Santos, but let us say, till we meet again. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with two major developments in Donald Trump's legal battles. First, off to Fulton County, Georgia, Trump's lawyers arguing before Judge Scott McAfee in the Georgia election case for the very first time, saying that Trump's charges should be thrown out on First Amendment free speech grounds. Trump's defense is also going after the current timeline for the case, which has the trial starting next August, just three months before the November presidential election. Trump is one of 19 people charged in the case regarding efforts to overturn the state's 2020 election results. Of those 19, you might recall, four of them have pleaded guilty. And then more breaking news in D.C. earlier today, a three-judge panel on a federal appeals court ruling that Trump can, in fact, be sued in civil lawsuits related to the January 6th Capitol attack, with the chief judge here in D.C. stating that not everything a president does is necessarily protected from legal liability. This ruling will impact several legal cases against Donald Trump, including cases brought by Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, as well as cases brought by Capitol Hill police officers. And beyond Donald Trump, this could have major implications for the presidency in general. Let's get straight into CNN's Nick Valencia down in Atlanta outside the Fulton County Courthouse. So Nick, what did Trump's lawyers argue in court today about free speech and what Donald Trump said about the case in Georgia. A fascinating day in court because this is the first time that we're hearing their arguments in court in this case. And what they're saying is that this indictment should have never been leveled in the first place, that it's protected by First Amendment, and that when Donald Trump lost the 2020 election and then he began to uh, peddle these conspiracy theories and make claims of widespread voter fraud, that at the core, those statements were political in nature and therefore protected by the First Amendment. Uh, Steve Sadow argued that the remedy for this false speech should not have been a political prosecution by the district attorney office here in Fulton County. Listen to what he had to argue in court earlier today. You take the facts as alleged in the indictment throughout the RICO count. 
And when you do that as applied constitutionally with the First Amendment, you find that it violates free speech, freedom of uh, petitioning, all the expressions that the First Amendment is designed to protect, and therefore the indictment needs to be dismissed. The state said that this is not about political prosecution, but rather that crimes that were committed and laws that were broken. Judge McAfee, the presiding judge in this case, unlikely to issue a ruling from the bench. Instead, he's told defense attorneys that they have until December 15th to broaden out their First Amendment arguments and given the state until January 2nd uh, to do the same. Meanwhile, we should mention all of this is happening while four of Trump's former co-defendants have already pleaded guilty to the crimes alleged in this and uh, agreed to be uh, testify against the former president any future trials. Jake? And, and Nick, tell us about um, what Trump's attorneys were arguing about this timeline for the trial with the expected start date in August. So that's another major headline that emerged from court today. In a recent interview with The Washington Post, Fonnie Willis said that she wants a trial to start with Trump and his co-defendants in August of 2024. And that scheduling came up in court today. And Stephen Sadow, Trump's attorney, said that that's just simply unrealistic. He said he expects his client to be the Republican nominee for president and that the trial in August 2024 would be in the heart of the presidential election cycle. In his words, it would be hard to imagine Trump being able to go on trial while simultaneously running for president. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Fulton County. Thanks so much, buddy. I want to turn now to CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed and Robert James, former DeKalb County District Attorney. So Paula, Trump's lawyers believe that the Georgia charges should be thrown out on these First Amendment rights to free speech, as you just heard Nick explaining. But the judge has already rejected these First Amendment argues from other defendants, including uh, Kenneth Chesbrough. That's right. He's rejected this for two other defendants, both of whom were former Trump lawyers, Ken Chesbrough and then Sidney Powell. And there the judge said, look, before you can even make this argument, there have to be certain record, a record of certain facts from a trial. But neither one of these defendants went to trial. They both entered plea deals to avoid having to go that far. Now, today, Trump's lawyers argue that no, no, no. In fact, you can decide this pre-trial. But Jake, in order for that to actually happen, they'd all have to be in agreement. Both sides would have to agree on the facts of the case, which means that Trump would have to concede that his claims of voter fraud were false. And Robert, Trump's attorneys are also arguing, uh, as you heard from Nick there, against the timeline of the trial, saying August is, is just too close to the November election and too soon. Um, what do you think Judge McAfee is going to make of that? Well, look, I don't think the judge has to consider um, when the election is. Ultimately, you know, Judge McAfee is a Fulton County judge and his job is to rule on and judge cases that happen in Fulton County uh, without respect to whether or not there's a national election. Um, he also asked a question, um, if President Trump were elected, how would that affect the timeline? And I think it would push it out to 2029 because there's serious questions about whether or not you can try a sitting president. So ultimately, he's gonna do his job, Judge McAfee that is, and he's going to make sure that um, things are done efficiently. And if that means it happens before an election, um, if it comports with the laws of Georgia and the United States, I think that's going to happen. And Robert, lawyers for former Georgia Republican chair David Schaefer, who is one of the fake electors who tried to overturn Trump's defeat in Georgia, argued that the fake electors weren't fake at all. They were instead contingent electors since Trump was, in fact, contesting the results. But well, we, we've also heard that argument before when they tried to move the case from Georgia's state court to, to federal court. The judge didn't seem to buy it then. Yeah, I don't think the judge is going to buy it now. I think ultimately this is something that's going to go to a jury. And 
12 people are going to have to decide. That's a look, that's a great defense when you're arguing to a jury. Right. And it may confuse some people. It may persuade some people. But you're asking a judge to dismiss a case uh, based on that. You know, that's your opinion. That's your perspective that it does not violate the law. But I don't think it's clear cut enough for the judge to dismiss that count of this case. And Paula, uh, big news here in D.C., a federal appeals court ruling uh, that Trump can, in fact, be sued in civil lawsuits related to January 6th. The judge writing in the opinion, quote, uh, the president, quote, does not spend every minute of every day exercising official responsibility. And when he acts outside the functions of his office, he does not continue to enjoy immunity. When he acts in an unofficial private capacity, he is subject to civil suits like any private citizen, unquote. And as we know, there are civil suits being brought against him by, for instance, some of the police officers affected that day, as well as a Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell. Mm -hmm. A consequential uh, decision, I would think, not only for Donald Trump, but potentially for, for future presidents. Absolutely. This is massive. We've been waiting for this one for a while. And it doesn't mean that Trump is liable for his actions on January 6th, but it means those folks you just mentioned will be able to get their day in court because they have sued a Trump for what he did on that day. But Trump had previously argued, he had said, look, I can't be sued for anything that happened on January 6th because I was president. I was acting in my official role. And we know that federal officers from the president on down enjoy civil immunity for things that they do in the course uh, of their official duties. But here the court found uh, that his remarks on January 6th were part of a quote, pro-Trump rally and more like campaign activity, not his official duties as the leader of the free world. Now, the Trump campaign has responded once again, insisting uh, that he was acting as president, and it is likely that they'll probably try to appeal this. So let me ask you, uh, Robert, do you think that this will ultimately be appealed all the way to the U up to the U.S. Supreme Court? Yes, I do. I think it's, you know, Trump's lawyers are going to appeal this as far as um, the higher courts will accept it. And if that's the Supreme Court, that's what it's going to be. But they will tie this up in litigation as long as they can and fight tooth and nail on every single issue, including this one. Yeah. And Paula, I mean, what what would that mean theoretically if it were upheld all the way to the up to the U.S. Supreme Court? And I mean, that's that's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> that's tough to imagine. But but what would that mean for the presidency as a whole? Uh, look, not only for civil uh, immunity is this significant, but also for the idea of criminal liability, right? Because that's the bigger question here for former President Trump. In March of next year, he will go to trial uh, related to alleged election subversion in January 6th. And he is raising some of these same questions in a criminal context. And here you have a court of appeals and in your hypothetical, even the Supreme Court saying, look, not everything you do uh, as president is an official act. Not everything you do uh, grants you uh, immunity. So this would be you know, incredibly damaging if it goes to the Supreme Court and is upheld for him in the criminal arena. But right now, even just having this appellate decision, uh, the fact that not everything he did is protected from liability, that's not great news for him in terms of how he wanted to try to use similar arguments for his criminal case. All right, Robert James and Paula Reed, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the reaction from former Congressman George Santos after the House of Representatives voted to give him the boot. Why would I want to stay here? The hell with this place. Hear what else he had to say. Plus, I'm going to speak with the Republican candidate who now wants to fill his empty seat. In our politics... In our politics lead, George Santos has left the building.
This is actually the moment, we're showing it to you right now, that now former Republican congressman from New York fled, I guess is the right word, fled the United States Capitol building before the gavel even came down, signifying that his fate has been sealed. He is now out of a job. Again, the House Ethics Committee compiled evidence of, of serious misconduct and unanimously said, recommended that he should be removed and other members of Congress found it damning and conclusive so overwhelmingly, more than two thirds of a bipartisan group of his fellow members of Congress whose profession is often synonymous with lying, voted to expel him. CNN's Lauren Fox has more now on how Santos became just the sixth lawmaker ever in the history of this wonderful country to be kicked out of that august chamber. In light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434. An unprecedented and historic vote as New York Republican George Santos becomes just the sixth member of the House to be expelled from Congress. Santos leaving the Capitol before the vote was officially announced, saying he has no plans to return. Why would I want to stay here? The hell with this place. 105 of Santos's Republican colleagues joining with all but four Democrats. After a bipartisan ethics committee report concluded, Santos sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. Basically, he defrauded the voters of his district. He, his life was made up. It was a lie. And then he used his campaign as though it was a scam the whole time, taking uh, money from donors and turning it into his personal use. It's not that deep. It's theft. The ethics panel finding that Santos blatantly stole from his campaign, including for travel, Botox, and even OnlyFans. One Republican congressman alleging Friday he was personally impacted. Mr. Santos took not only my credit card personally, he took my mother's credit card. This man has cost my family $30,000. The vote comes even after GOP leaders raised concerns about expelling a member before they were convicted of a crime. Speaker Mike Johnson took the rare step of voting against the resolution. I personally have real reservations about doing this. I, I'm, I'm concerned about a precedent that may be set for that. Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Whip Tom Emmer also voting no. Santos has pleaded not guilty to 23 federal charges. It's wrong what he was accused of doing, but he was accused. And if this institution is going to now ignore the rule of law because of political preferences and political decisions, it is going to be damning not just for the House, but it's going to be damning for the United States. Three members were previously removed from the House for fighting for the Confederacy. Two others expelled after being lawfully convicted of crimes in court. I'll go to jail before I'll resign. Most recently, Ohio's Jim Traficant in 2002. Santos's ouster could have a major impact on the GOP's already narrow majority. And over the next three months, we expect that this seat will be filled with a special election. Governor of New York Kathy Hochul will set that date of the election within the next three months. But obviously, it is going to be a tight race, given the fact that this is a district that Biden won in 2020, Jake. All right, Lauren Fox, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Kellen Curry, a New York Republican, already vying for George Santos' old seat. Uh, Kellen, thanks so much for joining us. So Democrats are going to do everything in their power to flip the seat blue. Why jump into this chaos? 
Oh, absolutely. Well, Jake, thanks so much for having me. And I'm encouraged by all the people that have gone on to KellenCurry.com to stand with us in this campaign. Uh, we desperately need better leadership in this country, uh, the best leadership we can provide. And right now we're not getting that uh, from Mr. Santos. It's a great day that he's gone and our district can get back to work. Uh, and I look forward to being a part of that solution. We've been at this for nine months now, and we've gotten endorsements from sitting members of Congress. We raised almost half a million dollars. And so we're fired up and we're ready to go. Does it concern you? Uh, that if you get elected, your leadership, the House Speaker Mike Johnson, other House Republican leaders, voted to not expel George Santos. No, I, look, I, 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 again, I think this is a great day for our country. It's a great day for our district's residents. We can actually get back uh, to serving the people and get back to actually delivering constituency services for NY3 voters, delivering real results for Long Islanders. I think this is a great day. Santos is in the past at this point. He's become a media narrative. People here aren't even interested in talking about Mr. Santos. They want to talk about the future. They want real leadership. And that's what we're providing in this campaign. Yeah, but your bosses, your leadership in the House of Representatives, should you win in November, are going to be people who voted to keep Santos in Congress. At the end of the day, the conference will be best served by folks who are going to be constructive members, who are not going to be distractions. And I'm going to be a part of the solution. I'm going to deliver on, on solving our border crisis, on, on deliver on reducing inflation in this country, deliver on uh, repealing this, the cap that was placed on, on state and local taxes so that we can deliver real results and tax relief for Long Islanders. That's what's important right now and going forward. You've already gotten some endorsements, some Republican lawmakers, former HHS Secretary Tom Price. Do you have any plans to, to meet with the House Speaker to get uh, Speaker Johnson's endorsement? Well, we're building a big tent. Uh, we want every, every, every member to support us. It will be great. Obviously, we've gotten some initial support, and we're going to build on that. We've been building on that from day one. We've gotten a number of former members as well. And so uh, it's been encouraging to have the support of of future colleagues. Uh, the most important thing in this campaign is to nominate uh, the right person for this seat. I believe I'm that person. We've been running a vigorous campaign for quite some time now, and we're ready to make sure uh, that we can bring this home for Republicans uh, in 2024. So you wanted George Santos out because obviously he's been accused of crimes, of lying and ethics violations. So has the Republican presidential frontrunner, former President Donald Trump, frankly accused of much worse. And he's been indicted on 91 different charges across multiple criminal and civil cases and in multiple jurisdictions. Um, what do you think about him running for president? Do you think he's fit for office? At the end of the day, the voters are going to decide that. You know, my focus is on this district uh, for the past uh, 11 months now. Uh, we've been out. We've been uh, not without uh, or we've been without the right representation, effective representation. We've had the most ineffective member of Congress. And so our attention right now is on this race right now to make sure uh, that we get it right in 2024. And we have the opportunity to do that here in about three months. I get uh, that. The American people are going to take care of the presidential race. Yeah, but you, you can't not give me an opinion on the most popular Republican in the Republican Party right now, the leading Republican presidential candidate. If you don't think George Santos is fit to be in Congress, you must have an opinion about whether Donald Trump is fit to be in the White House. At the end of the day, the American people are going to decide. No, that, but I'm Jake. asking you what uh, you think. What you think? We are, Jake. We are. We are in a vigorous debate right now. Uh, there, there. There's not just Donald Trump. There's Nikki Haley. There's Ron DeSantis. Oh, who do you like? Right now, they're duking it out for who's going to be the standard bearer of the party, and so we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, but who do you like? You must have a preference. Those are. You got a lot of good candidates in the race. Who do you like? Absolutely. 
I'm going to support the Republican nominee at the end of the day. Uh, I like. It's the not the end of the day. It's only 423. Yeah. Who do you like? At the end of the day, Jake, I'm it's, going to it's, again. The it's not the nominee. end of the. It's not the end of the day. It's 423. Yeah. Who do you like right now? Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump, Chris Christie, uh, who's uh, just from across the river. I mean, you must like one of these guys. Here's what I like, Jake. I like the process. I like the fact that we're having a vigorous debate right now about who's going to be the standard bearer. And I look forward to seeing that debate play itself out. Uh, we're going to have uh, debates. Iowa's coming up. New Hampshire's coming up. And so we'll see. Uh, I don't think we should get ahead of the process. I think we should allow it to play out. I think we should allow voters to weigh in. Uh, and, you know, folks don't like to be told what to what to do or what to think. And so we'll see where it goes from here. Well, Kellen, with all due respect, you had a lot to say about George Santos. He's now gone. And George Santos, uh, who had certainly a lot of embarrassing things that he did, said, and was, uh, it was, has been accused of and is charged with, is a piker compared to Donald Trump. Uh, and yet you don't have anything to say about him. Well, Jake, I know what you're trying to do here. I'm not the trying to do anything. Donald Trump, Donald, the fact is Donald Trump deserves his day court. He deserves due process. He deserves everything that's afforded to every single American. I don't think we should get ahead of that process either. So we'll see where it goes. There's no need to rush to a judgment right now about Donald Trump. Uh, the fact is he's going through court proceedings. He's going through a campaign and we'll see what the American people decide. Okay. Well, what about the civil court that already found him uh, guilty and awarded a, a woman uh, $3 million for uh, a sexual assault and that that court that day in court already happened? Would you have an opinion about that? Yeah. Well, Jake, here's what I do have an opinion about. When I get on doorsteps, people aren't asking me about Donald Trump. People aren't asking me about some civil case. They're asking me, how are we going to fix the migrant crisis that's impacting uh, New York City? How are we going to fix inflation that's impacting uh, American families? How are we going to bring down the cost of living here on Long Island? Those are the issues that I'm focused on. There's nothing I can do about what's going on with Donald Trump. The only thing I can do is deliver real, real leadership to this district. And that's what we've been talking about for the past nine months. And that's what I'm going to be focused on. Kellen Curry, thanks so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you for having me, Jake. We're going to go live to Israel next, where renewed fighting in the region includes strikes in southern Gaza. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In our world lead, the pause in the Israel-Hamas war is over. Today, Israel resumed artillery and airstrikes on targets inside Gaza. They say Hamas violated the terms of the week-long pause in fighting. Secretary of State Antony Blinken 
says that Hamas began firing rockets before the pause was set to end and reneged on commitments that Hamas made in terms of releasing certain hostages. This comes against the backdrop of damning New York Times revelations that leaders of the Netanyahu government dismissed detailed warnings about Hamas's attack plans for more than a year. And yet, nonetheless, we're obviously caught quite off guard on October 7th. Let's go to CNN's Matthew Chance in Tel Aviv. Matthew, in the past few hours, we've seen flares and heard explosions over Gaza. How intense uh, have today's attacks been? I, I think they've been very intense. We've returned to the level of intensity that we saw in the Gaza Strip before the truce, uh, the temporary truce was put in place more than a week ago. Um, and, uh, and we've seen like whole blocks being targeted by Israeli forces, airstrikes, artillery strikes, tank rounds as well. So some uh, very dramatic scenes uh, and tragic scenes being played out in, uh, in Gaza. Inevitably, the human consequences have been great, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, uh, which is, of course, controlled by Hamas. So far, there have been 178 Palestinians killed in just this day of Israel's renewal of its military uh, operation. And so, um, you know, obviously, that's of massive uh, concern, both in Gaza, here and in the United States. Hamas is attacking as well, of course. We've seen Israel's Iron Dome defense system intercepting incoming uh, rockets fired uh, at least seemingly toward uh, the population center of Tel Aviv. Yeah, of course. Um, in fact, you know, uh, the, the Israelis, as well as the United States, have made a point of, of saying that it was Hamas that fired the first shots in this latest round of fighting. Um, certainly there's uh, compelling video images, uh, as you can see there, of Iron Dome interceptors uh, of Israel, intercepting Palestinian rockets as they were fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel, here just behind me in Tel Aviv as well. And there are scenes from the south of Israel as well, where uh, Palestinian rocket attacks have, have struck various uh, locations in the south of Israel, you know, hitting cars. Fortunately, on this occasion, no Israelis injured, but obviously it just underlines that despite the ongoing military operation in Gaza, uh, Hamas, uh, other Palestinian militant groups are able to continue their strikes on Israel. The Israelis also dropped leaflets uh, on the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus, calling it a fighting zone, uh, urging residents to evacuate immediately. Is that practical? Can they evacuate? Uh, well, it's difficult. Remember, Han Yunis is a city in the south of Gaza. If you recall, already the vast majority of the population of Gaza City and of the Gaza Strip has moved to the south of the, of the, of the area. Um, and that's created a massive overcrowding issue. 80% of the population now, it's estimated, uh, are living in that southern part of the Gaza Strip, many of them in temporary accommodation uh, and, and in camps. And so uh, any effort to move them somewhere else is obviously going to ha uh, be a humanitarian um, it caused humanitarian problems, uh, to say the least. And that's something the UN and others are acutely aware of. All right, Matthew Chance in Tel Aviv, thank you so much. The resumption of fighting means more misery for the millions of innocent Palestinian civilians hemmed in across southern Gaza. And CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports that the death toll is already climbing. Of course, we do not know how many are Hamas and how many are innocents. We warn you, some of the images in Ben's report are quite disturbing. Pause is over. Now let's slip again the dogs of war. Still alive, 
Someone shouts as a baby is carried away from the ruins of a house hit in Rafah. In Khan Yunus, children are rushed into the emergency ward. The United Nations estimates almost 40% of Gaza's population is under the age of 15. Thousands of children have already been killed. And that must stop, pleads UNICEF spokesman James Elder from the Rafah Hospital. We cannot see more children with the wounds of war, with the burns, with the shrapnel littering their body with the broken bones. Inaction by those with influence is allowing the killing of children. This is a war on children. Mediation efforts to extend the truce came to naught. Israel continues to pursue its goal of destroying Hamas. Just be more careful while doing it, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken urged the Israelis. And I underscore the imperative to the United States that the massive loss of civilian life and displacement of the scale that we saw in northern Gaza not be repeated in the south. By Friday evening, the death toll since the morning shot past 170, according to Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry, adding to the nearly 15,000 killed before the truce. This man came to the Ahli Baptist Hospital in Gaza City in search of his little brother, Ziad, only to find him in a body bag. Ziad is dead, he cries into the phone. Inside, medics struggled to save the life of a two-year-old girl, gravely wounded in an Israeli strike. Since Friday morning, says hospital volunteer Rafiq Ayed, we've wrapped more than 40 martyrs from various areas who were bombed in their homes. There's still a chance the truce could be renewed if Hamas and Israel can come to a new agreement. The people of Gaza cannot afford to wait. And this evening, the bombardment of Gaza goes on. What we've seen is there's been an intense uh, bombing bombardment outside to the east of the city of Khan Yunis. Uh, that is where earlier the Israelis had dropped leaflets warning to people, warning people to leave that area because it would soon become an active military zone. All right, Ben Wiedemann in Jerusalem, thank you so much. This just in to CNN. A woman tried to set herself on fire outside the Israeli consulate building in Atlanta. Police are calling it, quote, an extreme act of political protest, unquote. Let's get straight to CNN's Rafael Romo in Atlanta. Rafael, tell us what happened. Jake, the incident happened at 12.17 p.m. That's when a security guard at this building behind me noticed there was a woman outside trying to set herself on fire using gasoline as an accelerant. The security guard tried to stop her from doing so, but in the process, he suffered uh, burns to his wrist and leg. The woman is now in critical condition. She suffered third-degree burns to 100% of her body, according uh, to police here. And as you can imagine, Jake, uh, this was cause for great concern here because this building behind me houses the Israeli consulate, but police are telling us that there was no one in the consular offices that was ever in any danger, in any harm. Uh, the staff is doing fine and there was no other problems. The area was cordoned off for several hours just a few moments ago. We saw the police leaving the building. As far as we know, she's only going to be charged with arson, but again, 
Police say that there was, this was not at all an act of terrorism. Jake, back to you. Rafael Romo, thank you so much. Coming up next, law and legacy. Remembering Sandra Day O'Connor, once called the most powerful woman in America. In our law and justice lead, the daughter of a rancher growing up miles from a paved road in Arizona. Sandra Day O'Connor rose to be called the most powerful woman in America. Justice O'Connor became the first ever woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. Her influence was frankly unmatched. She found the middle ground and shaped the law for many of the nation's most controversial issues, affirmative action, abortion rights, voting rights, religious issues. She wrote a public letter to the country in 2018 stating that she had been diagnosed with dementia and she died today at the age of 93. Here to reflect on her life and legal legacy, Judge Margaret McEwen, the senior circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit who knew Justice O'Connor personally. Judge McEwen, first of all, my condolences on the loss of your friend. Uh, let's start with her legacy, her legal legacy. She never served as Chief Justice technically, but it was often referred to as O'Connor's Court because her, her opinions had a, a major influence on the other justices. Well, that's right. Uh, thank you, Jake, for having me. It, it's a sad day for everybody, the passing of Justice O'Connor. But, you know, she left what I think is a really remarkable legacy. You mentioned that she was like the Chief Justice because she had such an impact on the court, and she did. I think part of that was a force of personality. She was also extremely pragmatic. And she also understood the importance uh, to the American public of understanding the court and giving the court legitimacy. Sometimes people said, well, she went to the middle. She was moderate. She never wanted to be viewed as wishy-washy because she knew exactly where she stood and why. But I think she had a remarkable influence to be able to persuade the other justices of her position, both in terms of the legal foundation, but also the pragmatic foundation. And that's why she left the legacy that you mentioned in so many of these areas, whether it's women's rights, abortion, voting rights, affirmative action. There are probably too many to, to list, but w when you think about the opinions that um, stand out to you and their impact, um, and thinking that she was a conservative, but not necessarily like the conservatives we see on the court today, Give me one, and it doesn't have to be number one, but just give me one of the decisions that you think <laughs> had an impact. It, it doesn't mean it's the number one one, but just give me one. Right, it's hard to say the number one one, but I think she is very well remembered uh, for her decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which reaffirmed the right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. And she went on the record publicly to say that didn't mean she necessarily agreed with abortion, but she understood the right to abortion and the right of uh, American women to choose. So that certainly stands out as her legacy, one of many. She's also clearly the definition of a trailblazer. Um, and as a judge, how, how did she inspire and pave the way for generations of women serving on the bench? Well, first of all, being the first uh, female on the U.S. Supreme Court was really a remarkable achievement. It had happened in other countries, but not the United States. 
So all of a sudden, legions of women, not just judges and lawyers, but really women across America, saw her as an icon for what women could be. And also, to use the word trailblazer is, is, also, is almost dismissive because she was more than a trailblazer. She really embodied someone who understood what justice meant, someone who understood what it was like to be discriminated against as a woman. Of course, getting out of law school, top of her class, Stanford Law School, she couldn't get a job. And she related that story many, many times over the years, not to denigrate what happened to her, but to celebrate what had happened to women afterwards. And much of that wouldn't have happened were it not for someone like Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah, a brilliant, brilliant woman nominated to the bench in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. Judge uh, Margaret McEwen, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, what to make of all the recent talk about respiratory illness going around? Is there a cause for alarm? We're going to bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. That's next. In our health lead, you might see it at the office or your kid's school. Lots of people are very sick right now. Respiratory illnesses on the rise. And it's all mainly because of three different viruses. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to break it down for us. Sanjay, what exactly is causing this uptick? Well, there are these three viruses, uh, Jake, and it's important to point out that we know what these viruses are. They're not necessarily novel or mysterious viruses because you've probably seen that in some of the headlines as well. Um, we, it's, it's flu, it's RSV, and it's COVID. It's sort of this triple threat. But I do want to show you, just to give you some context, if you look at pediatric respiratory virus hospitalizations and just sort of go back over the last few years, you can see, so far right is where we are now. In 2022 winter, there was a significant spike. Um, you can see where we are now, and that number is likely to continue to go up. But so far, it's not out of whack compared to what we've seen in the last couple of years. In fact, let me just show you what things have looked like over the last couple of years. Compare that to pre-COVID as well. So the green line in the middle, that's sort of 2022, 2023. Uh, the two previous years have actually had higher uh, hospitalizations for respiratory virus. These are all higher uh, post-pandemic. So it gives you some sort of context of what's going on here. But I think the really critical point is, you know, having covered these types of stories for a long time, you look to see, is a virus spreading human to human? Is it spreading within a community? The answer is yes. And we're seeing that in many places around the country. And then trying to figure out what exactly is causing this. And again, it is viruses we know there is concern about that, but not as big a concern as if they were novel, Jake. And, and there's this county in Ohio experiencing a, a, quote, outbreak of pneumonia cases in children. How similar are these cases to those that we're seeing in China and Europe? Pretty, pretty similar, in fact. Uh, you know, again, those three respiratory viruses, uh, flu, COVID, and RSV, but oftentimes, or at least many times, people may also develop a bacterial infection. So you got viruses, you got bacteria. Bacteria are treated by antibiotics, but some of these bacteria, Jake, are also resistant to the existing antibiotics. So you have all these different, the this, this swarm of viruses causing these bacterial infections, tough to treat these bacterial infections, and that's causing part of this problem as well. So as much as we talk about the pandemic, big problem, 
uh, antimicrobial resistance. That's going to be a bigger problem going forward in the years to come, something we've got to keep an eye on. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, what this new phase of the war between Israel and Hamas looks like tonight. We're going to go live to the CNN reporter closest to the Israeli-Gaza border. Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, why she did it. Actress Felicity Huffman, the former Desperate Housewives star, finally opening up about that college admissions scandal that landed her in the clink. Huffman says she was trying to give her daughter a future and she felt like she had to break the law. Plus, Donald Trump's attempted defense today, pushing to get his criminal case in Georgia dismissed, arguing that the indictment against the former president violates his free speech. And leading this hour, unfortunately, the ceasefire is over. Israel is launching new strikes in Gaza, accusing Hamas of violating its deal to hand over more hostages. The fighting resumed just hours after a report in The New York Times that Israeli leaders dismissed warnings of a pending Hamas attack. Let's start with CNN's Jeremy Diamond, who is near the Israel-Gaza border. And Jeremy, we've seen explosions and flares over Gaza all day. What is the Israeli government, what is the IDF saying about the renewed military operations? Well, Jake, not only has the Israeli military renewed its military operation in Gaza, it is also expanding it, moving combat operations, ground combat operations into the southern part of the Gaza Strip and also taking aim at key cities there, including Rafah, as well as Khan Yunus. And Hamas has been responding in kind. In just the last couple of hours, Jake, we have seen dozens of rockets being fired from just behind me in the northernmost part of the Gaza Strip. I want to show you one of those moments just earlier when we first got some of those rockets it's being fired. And you can see that there were multiple sirens going off, uh, dozens of rockets being fired in just one barrage. I counted 19 rockets being fired from a position right behind me that appears to be in the city of Beit Hanun, which is the northeasternmost city in Gaza. And what's remarkable about that, Jake, is that the Israeli military for a couple of weeks now has been claiming that they are in control of the northern part of the Gaza Strip. And yet, uh, clearly, Hamas still has the ability to fire rockets from some of those positions. It also, of course, comes as they have had a week now to uh, resupply, uh, to regroup, which was one of the fears of military analysts here in Israel. But what is also clear is that the Israeli military is continuing to pound key parts of Gaza. And the result of that, of course, has also been heavy civilian casualties once again. We know that in the southern part of the Gaza Strip, it appears, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, uh, that several hundred people have already been killed. Among them, they say, many women and children. What are the chances uh, of a new pause and hostage exchange? 
Well, what's interesting, Jake, is that even amid the renewed fighting, those negotiations between Israel and Hamas, mediated by the Qatari government with heavy assistance from the United States, those negotiations are still ongoing. And sources have told us that if Israel is presented with a list of 10 women and children, as they have been asking for in order to extend the truce today, that they would be willing to once again return to that pause in fighting in order to allow for the release of those hostages. It appears like Hamas is claiming that they simply don't have that number of women and children left in their custody in order to release. Some of that may have to do with some of those individuals, unfortunately, being dead. Uh, some of it could also have to do with the fact that other militant groups hold other uh, hold some of those hostages uh, themselves. But what is also clear is that at some point, these negotiations have to and are already starting to move towards the broader question of men as well as Israeli soldiers. Israeli political leaders recognize that getting those hostages out will come at a significantly higher price. And they also believe that these military operations, that the military pressure on Hamas will help to lower that price, putting pressure on Hamas at the negotiating table as well. What is the reaction in Israel, Jeremy, to the New York Times report uh, revealing that Israeli leaders had been given detailed warnings of Hamas attack plans, uh, and yet they were dismissed. It's really been silence, Jake. None of Israel's political leaders have commented on that report so far. What's also interesting is that it comes on the heels of, uh, in just the last week, a lot of reporting in the Israeli press about insider accounts of warnings from one intelligence officer in particular who has been named V in the Israeli press here. Uh, her warnings, effectively, about the very same type of attack that Hamas actually carried out, which were ignored uh, or dismissed in other cases as as well. Uh, but what's clear is that the New York Times report goes further than those accounts with very specific blueprint that the Israeli military and its intelligence community appears to have obtained. But it's not changing the posture of the Israeli prime minister, who has effectively said that all questions about this intelligence failure should be answered after the war ends. Of course, he is the only one really who has yet to take responsibility. Most of Israel's security leadership already has. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much. And this news just in the Biden administration and Israeli officials believe that Hamas continues to hold hostage a number of women who are approximately 20 to 30 years old who were kidnapped, many of them, from the Nova Music Festival. The fear, of course, that there is a specific reason why a group of terrorists would want to keep holding hostage a bunch of young women. Let us return to the blockbuster New York Times report the paper revealing that Israel knew of Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago, but Israeli officials dismissed it as aspirational and ignored specific warnings. This comes on the heels of uh, an article in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz last week saying, quote, over the past year, the Israel Defense Forces spotters situated on the Gaza border, all women, warned that something unusual was happening. Those who survived the October 7th massacre are convinced that if it had been men sounding the alarm, things would look different today, unquote. Now, we thought of having an Israeli government official come on to respond, but frankly, we have been asking about intelligence failures since the very beginning of the saga, starting with the horrific Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. And we've been getting the same answer over and over and over again. This one. Once again, all these questions can be addressed after uh, the conflict. And I'd remind you, and you know this better than most, that when we've had security uh, uh, mishaps or, or, or challenges in the past, we have known in this country how to investigate ourselves. 
So instead of subjecting you to that answer once again, I want to discuss this with former Deputy Director of National Intelligence in the United States, Beth Sanner, who is a CNN national security analyst. First of all, uh, Beth, obviously the fault of the Hamas attack is Hamas. First, foremost, period, full stop. But that said, Netanyahu's government ignored warnings and one not, cannot miss the fact that many of these warnings were from women. Mm. What is your reaction to this latest New York Times story? Well, I think that there is multiple levels of failure here. It's never just one thing, right? It's multiple things. So you can start from the bottom, you can start from the top. From the bottom, people did not listen to these young women, mainly young women. That's a cultural problem, right? Whether they were women or men, they didn't listen to junior officers. Then you get all the way to the very top where Netanyahu had policies that literally moved resources away from Hamas, uh, focused on Iran, 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 and maybe Hezbollah, and actually put money into uh, the settler movement, which stoked things and created policies that made Hamas and other adversaries say, hey, maybe now's the time we needed to attack. So you can look at this in all directions, but they have a huge problem um, yeah. that they need to deal with. And, and I have to say, um, what I read in the Times seems worse than that infamous intel briefing memo, mm. bin Laden determined to attack in the U.S., the detail in the New York Times article, it's incredible, Hamas battle plan. Um, according to documents seen by the Times, a Hamas plan called for a, a rocket barrage to distract the Israeli military, using drones to knock out security cameras, automatic machine guns along the wall, separating Gaza and Israel, breaking through the wall at up to 60 locations, attacking use of paragliders, motorcycles on foot, target towns as well as the Israeli military base at Raim. All of that actually happened, and as you know, mm -hmm. Uh, not only um, was the IDF focused on protecting these extremist settlers in the West Bank, Netanyahu himself was, was very engaged in trying to weaken the judiciary, and the country was politically uh, very divided. Exactly. So, you know, when you, when you look at warnings and whether you get these things right or not, there are two things you have to get right. One is the intent of an adversary to attack, and the other is the capability of an organization to attack. In 9-11, we got the intent right. We warned UBL, you know, red lights flashing is what George Tennant, head of CIA, said. But we didn't get the tactical warning right. Here, they got both wrong, even though they had the blueprint. So they didn't get the intent right. They didn't believe that Hamas still wanted to be a terrorist organization. They thought they had it cowed into this governing kind of body. And for that reason, they didn't even take a real hard shot at saying, huh, look at this blueprint. I wonder if they could actually do this. Yeah. And so that is the double failure here. So the Times article also cites a 2016 Israeli Defense Ministry memorandum that warns um, Hamas intends to move the next confrontation into Israeli territory. Mm -hmm. uh, such an attack would most likely involve hostage taking and occupying an Israeli community, perhaps even a number of communities, and the plan would involve hostage. Um, anyway, I, what's interesting about this, 2016, seven years ago, Yeah. I don't know how many people in the United States follow Israeli politics, but Netanyahu, who's been prime minister than anyone in the his longer than anyone in the history of Israel, his whole pitch to Israel is, I will keep you safe. He even says, like, you might not even like me, but I will keep you safe. Here is a Netanyahu ad from 2015. Here's a little clip of it. 
It's a couple, a young couple, waiting for a babysitter. They open the door. You got a babysitter. I will protect your children. I will protect your children. I can keep you safe. The others, the others won't. Here's another ad from 2019. He's a lifeguard. Go to the right. Go to the right. I will protect you. Go to the right. It's his whole pitch. I will keep you safe. Do you think this is the end for him politically? Absolutely. I just don't see how you get out of that. And I think that um, the hostage families who really, I mean, the heart of all Israel is with them. They have lost absolute confidence in Netanyahu. And they will tell you, I think you had a person on yesterday who... We had five families on yesterday. Yeah, and many of them said, I, my trust is with the IDF but not with Netanyahu. They understand that these decisions come and they filter down. And they, they distorted society over this period of time in Israel. And I think that, you know, this whole idea of, you know, we can't look at intel failures as just, oh, you know, some guy didn't listen to a female officer. Yes, that's important, but it's part of a bigger cultural and societal issue that they need to ask and grapple with. One of the other things, and it, it doesn't matter who gets attacked, who gets killed um, by Hamas. I mean, it doesn't matter their politics. But a lot of these people who lived uh, near Gaza were left wing. Exactly. And really did everything they could to work with the Palestinians. They opposed Netanyahu. They wanted peace. I mean, it also shows you how much none of this is about politics. It's about killing Jews for Hamas. It is. And unfortunately, in all of this, it has moved those uh, many of those people who really wanted peace, really wanted coexistence, and it's hardened them. Yeah. And we can understand why. If you see the films of what, had ha what happened, you can understand why. Uh, but it means that the two-state solution is farther now from us than it has been in 30 years. Perhaps. Perhaps. I got to hope. I'm always a buzzkill for you, though. <laughs> <laughs> I got to hope. Beth Sander, thank you so much. Some sound bites from Donald Trump will go in history books. Sound bites such as this one. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Not exactly ask not what your country can do for you. Still. Up next, the first signs of how Trump's attorneys are going to try to defend that call and other actions by Donald Trump in the conspiracy to steal Georgia's 16 electoral votes. Stay with us. And we're back with our law and justice lead attorneys for Donald Trump arguing in Fulton County Court today for the first time since Donald Trump was indicted in the Georgia elections case. They argue that the charges against the former president should be thrown out based on his First Amendment right to free speech. It's an argument the judge has already ruled against for two of Trump's co-defendants, Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbrough. CNN's Evan Perez and Tom Dupree are with me now. Evan, why would they use this First Amendment argument if he's already ruled against it? Well, I think Trump's lawyers believe that he's got a, a, a different kind of argument to make, that he has nuanced version of this argument because he was president, right? He was, uh, he was a sitting president. And, you know, the judge really, what the judge was looking at in the Chesbro and uh, the uh, Sidney Powell case was simply saying, like, look, this is an argument that is left for you to make when you go to trial. This is a trial argument. And that is probably where he still will stand. But for now, obviously, this has been an all-day hearing that has been going on 
on in the Fulton County Court. So for now, you know, he's listening to uh, Steve Sadow, the, the Trump lawyer, make these arguments of what, you know, potentially could be at stake in the coming months. Keep in mind, Jake, you know, part of the, the, the play here by the Trump team is to, is to uh, delay this trial. Uh, right now, the prosecutors are trying to have it next August right, in the middle of the election, and they claim that that is election interference, which is something the judge is, is sort of having trouble with uh, trying, to, trying to decide what, that, what to do with that. Hmm. And Tom, I want to play this moment when Trump's lawyers were asked if Trump could be tried in Georgia if he wins the election in November. Uh, if your client does uh, win election in 2024, uh, could he even be tried in 2025? The answer to that is, I believe that under the supremacy clause and his duties as president of the United States, this trial would not take place if at all until after he left his term of office. So see you in February 2029? Exactly. <laughs> we'll come back later for the trial of the century. Look, I think if that happens, if we're in that situation and, you know, kind of God, God forbid we are where there's a sitting president who's on criminal trial, um, I think the Trump team actually at that point would have a decent constitutional argument that you cannot prosecute criminally a sitting president. I think the Supreme Court might likely look at that question from the perspective of his constitutional duties. Would prosecuting a sitting president criminally interfere with his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed? Wouldn't surprise me if this Supreme court under those circumstances said that this goes too far and that the case does have to be even, deferred. Even if it is a state uh, Even if, well, you could already say right. arguably, especially if it's state, because then that adds on the additional <laughs> layer of the state supervising the federal government, which can't happen under our constitution. Uh, Evan, we also saw this major ruling in D.C. federal court that Trump does not have presidential immunity over civil lawsuits related to January 6th because it wasn't in the course of his presidential duties. What does that mean for Trump? Well, it's a, it's a pretty consequential ruling, at least when it comes to these lawsuits. These are lawsuits that were filed by uh, members of Congress and, and a, a Capitol Police officer who are claiming damages, right, for what happened on January 6th. What this ruling means is that, is that for now, these lawsuits can go forward. The former president can still make this argument, Jake, when, uh, as this litigation goes forward. But the big, big question that is still hanging out there, right, and you can see it in reading this, uh, this, uh, this uh, ruling today, we were all trying to, you know, parse it because, we're trying to we're trying to see what the 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 the, the, um, the the appeals court and ultimately maybe the Supreme Court will do with the question of of the presidential immunity with the criminal cases, right? We know the president, the former president, is going to make the same argument, right? That he's immune to Jack Smith's prosecution. He's trying to make that very argument. This is going to be a preview of that. Would this, assuming this is upheld in whatever court it goes to, because it's going to be appealed, right? Um, would this impact the powers of the presidency? I think it could, and that's one of the ironies of all of this litigation, Jake, is that on one hand, the former president is urging broad conceptions of presidential power, broad grants of immunity, but when the courts keep rejecting these arguments, I think it does have the effect of narrowing the president's powers, narrowing the scope of presidential immunity for future presidents. All right, Tom, Evan, thanks for being here, appreciate it. Congress moves fast when it wants to. In the morning, House members expelled George Santos by afternoon, the locks were changed on his office door. And that wasn't the only move to erase his name from the halls of Congress. Stay with us. In our politics lead, it's over. Those words from former Congressman George Santos, who was expelled from the House today over ethics violations. Congressman, what's your reaction to the votes as they come in? It's over. Yeah. But what, what reaction? 
I mean, the House vote, that's their vote. Sure. They just set new dangerous precedent for themselves. When it was all said and done, the resolution passed 311 to 114, with 105 Republicans voting in favor of expulsion. It resulted in this, the unceremonious removal of Santos's nameplate within hours of the expulsion vote. Let's get into this uh, with the panel. We should point out, in terms of people talking about the precedent and set, um, the House Ethics Committee did an investigation. They concluded, after a thorough investigation, that his behavior and his uh, conduct had been beyond the pale, and they unanimously, Democrats and Republicans, voted to expel him, unanimously. So it's not like it came out of nowhere, it was just Democrats or just Republicans. I mean, that is pretty rare. Um, others expelled from the Congress uh, voted, you know, fought for the Confederacy and, and were convicted of crimes. But do you think that this is dangerous because he has not been convicted of a crime? I, I do not. Look, he, here's the situation here. He will face his day in court. He's facing 23 indictments on uh, very serious charges uh, with regard to campaign finance. He will have his due process and his day in court. With regard to Congress, there, believe it or not, there are actually standards and conduct of behavior that members of Congress have to meet. And they set those standards and enforce those standards. And when, when, when he was brought forth before the Ethics Committee, he had the opportunity to refute these charges or to set the record straight. He gave the Ethics Committee the middle finger and did not answer up. Now, 311 of his colleagues gave that middle finger right back to him and said, enough. You're an embarrassment, you're a fraud, and we're not going to have you here anymore. So uh, he doesn't have the, the right to, to be a member of Congress. It is a privilege to do so. And if you don't meet the standards of behavior, fortunately, his colleagues said, we're done. And I think they would have set a different standard had they not voted to expel him, which would be in the face of when his own constituents, remember in the fall, right after the election, when things started to come out, started to, they were trying to figure out how can we get rid of him and there's no constitutional way for his own voters, right? They had to rely on the ethics committee. It would have set a standard that says, we're gonna protect our own, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. And remember, he, Jake, he actually admitted to some of this uh, when it first came out. The other thing though, if you think about the Ethics Committee, you know, it was formalized, I believe, in 1967. And over the years, they have actually added rules and regulations as the times have changed. And as one of our colleagues said earlier this week, this is political catfishing, right? I mean, this is a person who created new ways, frankly, of scamming his voters that I also hope that the Ethics Committee takes a look at and says, are there new rules and regulations that we need to add to make because we now believe this level of conduct is not appropriate if you're to be in public service yeah. that they would adhere to going forward. Yesterday, uh, before Santos became an ex-congressman, um, he and Republican Congressman Max Miller, uh, Republican of Ohio, got into a testy exchange on the House floor. I want you to take a listen. I myself have been a victim of George Santos and as well as other members of Congress in terms of defrauding through public donations. I had received an ethics complaint from the FEC, which I had to spend tens of thousands to defend myself. You, sir, are a crook. I know it. Mr. Speaker, hypocrisy, as I mentioned. My colleague wants to come up here, call me a crook. Same colleague who's accused of being a woman beater. Now, that is true. Uh, the, the, that accusation has been leveled against Congressman uh, uh, Miller. And I guess the point he's making is people in glass houses. Um, Look, you know, Miller 
had his day, you know, in the legal system with regard to those charges, and that, that, is, that has been resolved. Look, what I think is disgusting about Santos, aside from the fact that he's a fraud and a crook, is the fact this whataboutism. Instead of owning up to what he does, he's like a four-year-old child. I know I did wrong, but what about you? Right. What about... I know you are, but uh, what am I? Exactly. <laughs> and that, that's really childish. And I'll tell you what, many Republicans that I spoke with in Congress, they were willing to look at the precedent this would set and, and vote to keep Santos in office, but when they heard that story that Max Miller was screwed over by Santos and his mother, they said enough is enough. It's one thing, it's bad enough to lie to your constituents and they don't know any better than to elect you, but when you screw over a colleague, they were done. I'm, 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 I'm here, to, by the way, to provide all the devil's advocate defenses of George Santos today, and I don't yes. want anyone to think I'm doing anything other than trying to provide lively debate topics. Here is another lively debate topic, and I am deeping into my, 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 uh, my barrel of yep. defenders of George Santos. I am plucking out Matt Gates. Ooh. Here it is. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, whatever Mr. Santos did with Botox or OnlyFans is far less concerning to me than the indictment against Senator Menendez, who's holding gold bars inscribed with Arabic on them from Egypt while he is still getting classified briefings today. But he's not getting thrown out of the Senate. He's getting classified briefings under indictment for bribery. But what, what, because Santos was, was buying Botox and OnlyFans, we got to throw him out? Uh-huh, yeah. So when Matt Gates is your defender, you're in trouble. Exactly. Uh, but let's talk you about... You say you or you're talking about... You're not talking about... <laughs> no, talking not about, you. Not you. Not you. Santos, People. George okay. Santos. <laughs> Anyone. When one. When one does such a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. We know you have your barrel of... You I'm know, just a devil's like, advocate. Exactly. That's my job. That's my job. The best job in the world. Um... Now, but look, let's talk about the politics about, of this for just a moment. Yeah. I think this also, this situation was so bad, it literally rose to the level that Republicans recognized with their existing baggage, they could not handle the additional baggage that Santos you know, was keeping. You're on saying, the what do you have to do in this day and age to be so embarrassing that the Republican Party wants to kick you out? Right. And, you yeah. know, Matt Gates has his own troubles with the ethics committee. So. All right. We're moving on. Karen Finney, <laughs> Alice Stewart, thank you so much. Have a great weekend to both of you. You're it's so good to see you. Just into CNN, police warning of a killer targeting the homeless, leading one big city mayor to warn, do not sleep alone. Tonight, we're going to show you the picture of the possible suspect. That's next. This just into CNN, we now know that Derek Chauvin, who was convicted in the killing of George Floyd and attacked last week in federal prison, was in fact stabbed 22 times in prison. A suspect is now facing a charge of attempted murder and three other assault charges. Officials say Chauvin was in the law library when he was attacked and stabbed multiple times with an improvised knife. According to the federal complaint, the suspect told officers he had been contemplating attacking Chauvin for about a month. We do not yet know Chauvin's condition. This also just into CNN, a potential serial killer is targeting the homeless in Los Angeles. That's according to city officials who are warning those uh, who are homeless to, to not sleep alone after three people have recently been shot and killed. Let's go to CNN's Nick Watt. And Nick, this is obviously distressing news. Tell us more. 
Well, an extraordinary press conference and a plea by city officials for help from the public to identify this person that they believe is targeting unhoused people. I'll quote Mayor Bath. She says, this is a killer who is preying on the unhoused. A message to that killer, we will find you, we will catch you, and you will be held accountable. They have released a picture of a vehicle that they suspect the suspect was driving, and they have released an image of the person they believe to be the suspect, a single man, a male. That is what they are saying. Now, three murders. Sunday, Monday, Wednesday, all of them in the early hours of the morning, all of the victims, men who were sleeping alone on the street, one on a couch in an alley, one on a sidewalk, and homicide detectives realized that there were common themes here and they connected these three murders. They are now, of course, looking for any other unsolved murders of unhoused people in Los Angeles and in surrounding jurisdictions to see if perhaps this killer has struck other times. Now, the three locations, we've noticed they are all within striking distance of the 110 freeway, a major artery running north-south through Los Angeles. Um, as you mentioned, unhoused people are being told, do not sleep alone. Easier said than done in Los Angeles. They're being told to find shelter. Easier said than done in Los Angeles. The city is also hoping to open shelters for unhoused people that usually only open in times of bad weather. So that is how seriously the city is taking this. But listen, there are more than 46,000 unhoused people in L.A., and it is a dangerous life. Four or five people die on the streets here every day from various, various reasons, including violence. Every elected official we have promises to solve this problem. None of them have been able to do so, including the current crop. But right now, they are trying to keep the unhoused people safe with what they believe, Jake, is, as you say, a serial killer. They haven't used those words, but the crimes, the individual, it does all add up the profile of a serial killer targeting unhoused people here in Los Angeles with a huge population of unhoused people now, they say, at risk, at grave risk. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in Los Angeles for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, she starred in Desperate Housewives, then she went to federal prison because of the college admissions scandal. Ahead, actress Felicity Huffman on why she broke the law. Desperate Housewives star Felicity Huffman is finally speaking out about her role in that college admissions scandal known as Operation Varsity Blues. Huffman, as you may recall, pleaded guilty to paying $15,000 to falsify her daughter's SAT scores. It's a crime that sent the Emmy-winning actress to prison. Stephanie, Steph, CNN's Stephanie Elam is, is here with the story. And Stephanie, uh, Huffman says she initially thought her arrest was a joke. Yeah, she did not think that anything this serious would happen to her. And, you know, she was one of 33 wealthy parents who were using that wealth and their influence to work to try to get their kids to cheat to get them into these top-notch colleges. She says the way it went down, and this is the first time we're hearing from her, she really did not think it was a real deal. In fact, take a listen to what she told uh, our affiliate KABC. They woke my daughters up. At gunpoint, again, nothing new to the black and brown community. Um, then they put my hands behind my back and um, handcuffed me, and I asked if I could get dressed. And I thought it was a hoax. She says, hindsight being 2020, that she really 
felt like she was going to be a bad mother if she did not go through with this plan uh, as it was all coming to her as she was hearing about this and that she wasn't going to be able to get her daughter into school without doing it. Um, in fact, listen to a little bit more of how she explains her decision process to arrive where she did. I had to give my daughter a chance at a future. Um, and so it was sort of like my daughter's future, which meant I had to break the law. I kept thinking, turn around, just turn around. And to my uh, undying shame, I didn't. Yeah, she talks a lot about her shame. Uh, she also apologized, quote, to the students and families that sacrifice and work really hard to get to where they are going legitimately. In December 2019, she was sentenced to 14 days in prison. She also got a year of probation, 250 hours of community service on top of a fine of $30,000, Jake. Why is she speaking out now? That's what everyone wanted to know. It's like, why now? Like, why are we talking about this? Well, it has a lot to do with that community work that she started doing. She started volunteering at an organization called A New Way of Life. It's a nonprofit that helps previously incarcerated women get back on their feet with housing, clothing, job training, all of that. And so she started working there. The founder of the organization said that she was just going to put Huffman at a desk. But instead, she said, no, I really do want to work. So she started coming up with exercise programs. She started organizing the donations that were, they were getting and has now joined the board of directors. So really putting in the work and now trying to use her infamy in this case to highlight the good work of this organization in South L.A. All right, Stephanie Elam, thank you so much. Coming up next, another well-known actor offering a different perspective on all the recent acts of anti-Semitism and hate that we're seeing in the wake of events in the Middle East. Stay here for that fun conversation. The people of the 21st century, huh? Hey. Hey. The best. In our pop culture lead, The Fonz has a brand new book out after a, a remarkable life and storied career. I spoke with Henry Winkler about it all just a short time ago. And joining me now, award-winning actor Henry Winkler. He's author of the new memoir, Being Henry, The Fonz and Beyond. This is very surreal for me because, you know, growing up, I watched uh, this guy every, every week. So did I. Tuesday nights. Yes. Tuesday nights, ABC. Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock, ABC. Unbelievable. Every episode. I, I wrote him fan mail. And I would hit the jukeboxes, and it didn't, work, it didn't work for me. Okay, can I just say something? What? Jake, I swear to God, if you have a man named Pete behind the uh, scenery, and, and he plugs it in, it will go like so that. So that's what I needed. Unbelievable. Okay. I hit it, he plugged. You ain't out of my my friend Josh and I, we used to joke all the time. We'd go, Cunningham, in my office, and we go to the bathroom yeah. every time. So you landed the role of the Fonz, or yes. the Fonzarelli, right. uh, on Happy Days, within two weeks of moving to Los Angeles. No, not moving, landing. landing. I was only there for a month. I had $1,000. I was going home <laughs> on my birthday when my money ran out. Yeah. They called, uh, Tom Miller called and said, do you want to play this character? So you changed your voice for the character, not, not to I mention... I changed it in the, in the audition. Yeah. All of a sudden, it was like I was overtaken by a dibba. Can you do it? I can... What are you talking about? You just don't look at me, buddy. You can't look at me in the eye, all right? You want to ask me a question, you face that way. You also created a... A... <laughs> yes, and then I created... Whoa. 
uh, which I got from horseback riding. But so to so many people, including me, at the age I was watching yes. you as Fonz, yes. the Fonz is, is the coolest. He's the epitome of cool. Right. Um, but you write about when you were a teenager. Yes. Chasing the cool kids, never feeling cool yourself. That is exactly right. I always felt like I was on the outside looking in, wanting to be over there. And then I realized that all of the children's books that I write are about children who always want to be over there and try to figure out how to get there. So was it surreal becoming the personification in the 70s of coolness? Surreal. Not having actually felt cool yourself. Surreal. Because, you know, people would talk to me and I was thinking, who are they talking to? Right. They, they cannot be talking to me. They don't know who, who I am inside, yeah. you know? Uh, and it was amazing. I got to be my imagination. So even though you went to Emerson College and the Yale School of Drama, right. two very fine schools, right. Um, you write about getting kicked out of class. Right. You struggled memorizing lines. You, yes. were, you were diagnosed with dyslexia at age 31. Yes. Um, and here you are, a very successful author, actor, it at is, 78. Is, yes, that is true. You had to say that. <laughs> um, but no, uh, it, it is true. It, it became a second profession, but it was, it started as a time filler. Writing? I couldn't get hired as an actor. Someone suggested write children's books about your dyslexia, which then um, my son, Max, our youngest, said, Dad, you've got so many stories you should write. This is after Happy Days? This is after Happy Days. This is 2003 With I started writing. You have so many anecdotes in your book from, from your time on Happy Days. One stuck, uh, stuck out to me. Ron Howard, 10 years younger than you. He corrected you when you punched a script in frustration. That is true. He said, oh. he said don't do so because the writers work so hard. How did that impact you? I never did it again. Yeah. He is a very wise human being. He was wise at 18, and I was frustrated, uh, and I couldn't make a joke work. He said, you know, don't, don't hit the script. They're working as hard as they can. Yeah. I said, Ron, I will never hit my script as long as I live. Not many people know. Yes that your parents escaped uh, Nazi Germany in 1939. Yes, they did. Um, and all of your extended family uh, was, was murdered by uh, yes. the Nazis in the Holocaust. I did a show called Better Late Than Never. We traveled all over the world. I was with uh, Bill Shatner and George Foreman and uh, Terry Bradshaw. And we were in Berlin, and I saw the toe of my uncle, who I only heard about but never met. Um, every Jew that was taken uh, has a silver plaque in the place uh, where they were uh, living, taken, born, and what camp they went to. We're obviously in a time where there is uh, rising anti-Semitism. Yes. We're seeing it all over the yes. world. Uh, we're seeing it all over the United States. How does it feel as, as, as somebody whose parents survived the Holocaust or escaped the Holocaust, as somebody who's whose extended family? History repeats itself. Yeah. And as we um, really, really uh, disrespect education even more in this country, uh, people will not know. And so um, it flowers again. Henry, I, I, I know you a little bit. You always contribute to my auction for veterans. Absolutely. And you, you are literally the nicest person I've ever met. Like you, what I am is grateful. Just so people know, this is not like an act. This is what he actually is like on camera, off camera, always to everyone he knows. The book is great. It's called Being Henry the Fonz, 
and beyond. I highly recommend it. And if you get a chance to meet Henry Winkler, I highly recommend that, too. No, and also, let me just say, there are a few pictures in there when you get tired of reading. Okay. Good to see you, Henry. A Thank pleasure, you so much. Jake, really. Honestly, just like the sweetest, just the sweetest guy in the world. Such a privilege to know him. In our world lead, a famous leaning tower in Italy may not be leaning for too much longer. It's not the leaning tower of Pisa. Instead, this one is in Bologna. City officials are planning for a sudden and unexpected collapse of the Garrisenda Tower, which has been around since the 12th century. The tower was actually referenced in Dante's Inferno, which was published in the 14th century, and it was already leaning back then. The plan for a collapse includes evacuation and putting up a protective metal device with nets to contain the debris. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, also Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington, who's chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon here on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show. Once you get your podcast, our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the situation. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.